With that said, we are smack dab in, probably not even the middle, but, but we're smack dab in the gospel. We have been going through the gospel. This is week 27, and we are going through the gospel chronologically, meaning not just Matthew or Mark, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chronologically trying to hit everything, which I thought I could do in one year. <laughs> no. That's not happening. So, week 27, as we continue with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, uh, so far, uh, dealt with fasting and giving and praying. And as we continue, it's going to deal with the focus that we have in our lives. What are the things that we focus on with our minds? So far, Jesus has spoken a lot about what goes on in our hearts on the deepest levels, but this week we're going to talk about where we keep our focus mentally. I read a story this week that I had never read before, and uh, it's a somewhat local story, so I bet a couple of you have. I almost guarantee that Josh Prestine knows this story, uh, because it's right down his uh, alley, but I had never read it. Have you ever heard of a man named Forrest Finn? Okay, so a lot of you guys had. I didn't grow up in this area, but there's a man named Forrest Finn. I think we got a picture of Forrest. We should. Yeah, that's Forrest. Forrest Finn was a pilot in the U.S. Air Force, earning the rank of major and awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam, where he flew 328 combat missions in one year. After his military service, he ran an art gallery where he made his fortune, sometimes bringing in up to $6 million a year. He died in 2020 at the age of 90 years old, but not before publishing his memoir, which you can see there, called The Thrill of the Chase. Finn described a treasure chest containing $1 million in gold coins. He said that he had buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Now, you know the Rocky Mountains are a big area. He said he buried it somewhere, and he said north of Santa Fe. That doesn't, doesn't narrow it down a lot, but somewhere between Santa Fe and Canada, there was this treasure chest Finn said that the stories in his memoir included clues to the chest's location and that the poem found in the chapter called Gold and More contained nine clues that would lead to the chest. The result was a modern-day treasure hunt stretching from Santa Fe to the Canadian border. In 2020, Finn posted in his blog that the chest had been found. He said that it was under a canopy of stars in the lush forested vegetation of the Rocky Mountains. Also doesn't narrow it down a whole lot, other than there's some trees, I guess. Uh, And he said he had not moved it since he had hit it 10 years before. He said, I do not know the person who found it, but the poem in my book led him to the precise spot I will congratulate the thousands who participated in the search and hope they will continue to be drawn by the promise of other discoveries. The victor at first remained anonymous, but was later identified as Jack Stoof, a medical student from Michigan. Some people believe the whole thing was a publicity stunt, which Finn and Stoof both deny. 
There have been several documentaries as a result from the treasure hunt, but here's one of the things I really want you to hear is this sounds like an amazing story, and it is a pretty crazy story, but of all the people that went looking for this treasure for 10 years, five people lost their lives searching for this treasure that we know of. And so there's this earthly treasure that a man who had made millions and millions of dollars literally laid upon the earth, gave people the tiniest of clues as to where it might be, and then hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, went searching for it, ultimately costing at least five people their lives before eventually it was found. As I read this story this week, I was struck by that last part. Five people had lost their lives in a pursuit of an earthly treasure. And this is just one story of treasure hunters dying to try to find riches that don't even, that doesn't even get into all the people that have lost their lives diving into oceans looking for sunken treasure. Or if you're like me, uh, anybody ever watched the show The Curse of Oak Island? Like, I am so locked in on that show, it's ridiculous. And these people have spent millions of dollars for potentially maybe finding a treasure that might make them that much money back if they're lucky. This whole idea of treasure hunting, there's something that seems so romantic and heroic about the stories, but in the end, so many more people lose their lives in these pursuits than those who actually gain the earthly treasure. And even in the cases when someone does uh, obtain that treasure, you almost always hear a story later where they admit that it did not make them feel what they thought it would make them feel. They thought it would bring purpose and joy to their lives, and yet they realize it was actually the thrill of the chase that was keeping them numb to everything else. With that in mind, we're going to jump back into the Word. If you have your Bible, if you have a device, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 again. It will also be on the screen if you need. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, talking about treasure, talking about resources, talking about money, riches, all these things, and I want to start out by saying this, I've said this, Many times, and I'll continue to say it, having money or being wealthy or having treasure is not wrong or evil in and of itself. You may have heard it. It's often said that the Bible says money is the root of all evil. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so it's not money, it is if you love money, if it becomes the primary driving factor in your life, if it is the pursuit of your heart, then it becomes a root of evil in your lives. 
And when people become so obsessed with that that they can't focus on the things of this world that are actually important, things get twisted. It's when money, possessions, treasures, or resources become the driving factor in our lives, that's when this root of evil starts to take up place in us. When it takes the place that only God should have, which is the reason for life. And God knows us. He knows that the love of resources and money can take hold of us more quickly than just about anything else. And so God talks about it a lot in the Bible. You may be surprised to know I've said this a couple years ago, but did you know that money is the second most talked about subject in the Bible, in the whole Bible? The only thing that the Bible talks about more than money is the kingdom of God, right? This whole idea of the kingdom. There are 500 approximately verses on prayer. There are less than 500 that talk about faith. And there are over 2,000 verses that talk about money, resources, treasure, whatever you want to call it. 16 of the 39 parables that Jesus spoke dealt with our resources. 15% of all the words that Jesus said in the Bible were on the topic of money and possessions. That's more than if you combine all that he said about heaven and hell. He talks about financial resources. Why? You might sit here and feel very uncomfortable that I'm even talking about money in church. And you may ask what God has to do with your resources. Everything. Everything. There is no compartmentalization for Christians. Let me say that again. There is no compartmentalization for us. We don't have a financial compartment of our life and a spiritual compartment and a family compartment and a hobbies compartment. No, our whole life has to do with the Lord. He should be the very foundation of all of it. And our financial resources become a sense of comfort and control for us. But our comfort should come from God, and control belongs to God. God knows that nothing in this world wars for our heart's attention more than stuff and finances and resources. If you were with us two or three years ago now, remember going through the book of Judges and how every time one of those judges would fail, it was because of the promise of more stuff, more money, more crops. They believed that if they bowed to another false god, that they would have a bumper crop and there'd be more money, more things This is not new, this idea that resources, that stuff, that money takes the place of God in our lives. And yet, we continue to allow that to become the thing that takes our attention. We try to compartmentalize it, but we can't. In that same book, 1 Timothy, that talks about the 
the root of all kinds of evil. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy to instruct people who do have a lot of resources on how to live in the world. And I want you to understand, if you weren't with us when we talked about this before, if you live in America and you have like a home and a car and, and you eat every day, you're rich. Like you are crazy rich compared to the rest of the world. And so this is not just for people who are exceedingly wealthy, top 1% of people. This is for all of us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes of uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that last line. Do you see that? That they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's not the resources. It's not the money that's truly life. It is the things that you can use those resources for to bless the kingdom of God that is truly life. Just like every gift that comes from the Lord, we are called to use whatever resources that we have to build his kingdom. I want to say this too, kind of a side note. You don't have to be exceedingly wealthy to love money. Right? There are people who have very little money in comparison to the rest of the United States. And still, that is the greatest passion of their heart. They are just pursuing money, pursuing resources, pursuing a bigger house, a nicer car, or whatever it is. It becomes the love of their heart. And so it's not just those who are exceedingly wealthy. It's, it's any of us who can fall into this trap of loving money, of loving resources. Warren Wearsby, a great Bible commentator, says, materialism will enslave the heart, the mind, the will. We can become shackled by the material things of life, but we ought to be liberated and controlled by the Spirit of God. It's so good. But the Word of God gives us examples of people who were wealthy and yet didn't just fall into this trap. If you read through the Old Testament, you read the story of Abraham. Abraham was insanely wealthy. Talk about all the people that he just had at his disposal, the people that worked for him, all the flocks and everything, and yet he is known for his faith in the Lord. Joseph was potentially the second most wealthy man in terms of access to riches in the world, and yet he continues to pursue the Lord in all of it. Job was exceedingly wealthy, had everything taken away from him, and still did not turn away from God. And so you can have these resources, you can have these things, and still not be in love with them. God gives us beautiful examples of this. That line... In Matthew that says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Hit me so hard a few years ago. And that's another thing I think I've shared before. But 
it hit me so hard because I started to think a lot about that. Like, what does that mean to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Because we can't take anything with us, right? The old joke is like, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Like, you're still dead. You're not going to bury your boat unless you're like a really weirdo kind of person. You're not going to bury your boat with you. I guess it's possible now. But I started to think about that. What does it mean if I can't take homes or cars or vacation spots or cabins or boats and all these things, if I can't take those with me to heaven, then what does it mean for me to lay up my treasures in heaven? And then it hit me, the only treasure that I can take with me is people. People. The only treasure that is transferable from this life into the next life are people. The children that we raise, the grandchildren that we get to pour into, the brothers and sisters in Christ that we get to live life with, the people that are outside of these walls that hopefully we can share the gospel with, those are the only treasures that we can take into eternity with us. That's why God tells us to use all of our resources on this earth to build the kingdom of God and to bring as many people to know Jesus as we possibly can and to raise up the next generation of disciples that will see the world the same way. The only treasure that we can take with us are the people that we share Jesus with. Let's read Matthew 6, 22 and 23. This one is a little bit interesting to kind of grab hold of. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. That's worded kind of oddly, let's be honest. But the idea here is that what we focus on, what we use our eyes to focus on, not just physically eyes, but like what we as people spend our time, our energy, our resources, our sight, everything, what we focus on determines how we see the world. It determines what our life is going to look like. John Wesley said, the eye is the lamp of the body, and what the eye is to the body, the intention is to the soul. That's what we are going to intend towards. And this speaks of our perspective on life. What is the focus of our lives? What are we living for? Are we living just to make a wage? Are we living to get to the next moment of recreation? Are we living for our toys? What is the purpose, the focus of our lives? Do we actually take the Lord seriously when he calls us to live for him and the building of his kingdom? 
Those who see spiritually and eternally, their vision is 2020, and they focus on building his kingdom. Right? It's the old idea if you played sports growing up, you know, keep your eye on the ball. What is the focus? And don't focus on the other things. Like this one's more for you guys who, who live here, but I, I'm not a skier. I used to be a snowboarder, but you've heard the term like, like don't focus on the trees, right? If you're skiing through some trees and all you're doing is thinking like, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, you're going to smack that tree. But if your focus is where you're wanting to go, then you follow that path. Where is the focus? What are your spiritual eyes focused on? Are they focused on the things that bring the Lord glory or the things that we think will bring us happiness? If we're really honest, we know we're never going to be fully content with the things that this world has to offer us. Maybe you've had one of those moments where you finally got the dream house or the dream car or the dream spouse or the dream boyfriend or girlfriend, and you were sure, as soon as I get this, I'm going to be so happy. And then, you know, you realize even the dream spouse, not perfect. Even though you guys are, like, not perfect. We know. We are always left wanting when our focus is on the things of this world. Jesus doubles down on this. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or your Bible might say God and mammon. Which is the same idea, the resources, the provisions. The bottom line principle is here, here is, the question is not, what do you own? The question comes down to, who or what owns you? It's okay to have things. It's okay to have resources. It's okay to have relationships. But does that thing, does that person own you? The imagery would have been clear to the crowds that were listening to Jesus speak this because half of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And you could not be a part-time slave to the Roman Empire. You were either fully a slave to the Roman Empire or you turn and you become a follower of Jesus and then you still have to do your work, but you have your focus on the kingdom of God and we cannot be, listen, we cannot be part-time Christians. We cannot be compartmentalized Christians. It doesn't work that way. You were bought at a price and redeemed for a purpose, and God does not share with the world. Far too often we see our faith in Christ as one aspect of who we are. Like our job or our hobbies or our alma mater. But the reality is that if you are following Jesus, he asks that you make him the very foundation upon which everything else is built. 
You cannot make Jesus the co-ruler of your life alongside something else. It's like the old silly bumper sticker said, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, then you need to switch seats. Right? The context of this chapter in particular is money. We cannot serve both God and money. They are mutually exclusive masters. That's not to say that you can't serve God and use the resources that he's given you to bless the kingdom, but you cannot serve money and serve God. They don't have the same goals. They don't have the same purpose. One can fulfill the deepest desires of the longing of your soul, while the other will always leave you wanting for more. Let's continue. Matthew 6, verse 25 and 26. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The language here is interesting. It's not just saying, don't worry. It's saying, to stop an action that's already happening. So it's not just saying in the future, don't worry. It's saying, I know you're worrying. Cease worrying. Stop living your life in worry. Do you know that the word worry literally comes from an old English word that means to strangle? That makes sense, doesn't it? You become strangled by this worry, by this concern. And Jesus says, look at the birds. Have you not seen? Do you see the birds fretting about how they're possibly going to build a nest? They do not work. They do not build a financial nest egg. Come on. Thank you. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus understands that people are more valuable than animals, unlike some people in Montana. <laughs> Philippians 4 speaks about this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking, because it's the same thing that I think when I first read these words. The Bible says, don't worry, and you're like, okay, I'll just stop doing that, because I have full control over my mind all the time. And I, and, oh, oh, worrying is bad? Okay, I'll stop. Right? We don't necessarily control all that. I know it's not easy. And I don't think that God thinks it's that easy that we just say, okay, God, you're right. I'll stop doing that. But God does give us some advice that I think can go a long way in this. 
right? It says in Philippians, pray about everything. And I'm not saying that this will immediately cause you to cease worrying. I wish that that worked that way. I wish I could just immediately pray and then God say, now you'll never worry about this again. But if you spend time praying about those things, if you take those things to God in prayer, every single time you're tempted to start fretting and worrying, you will get a new look at yourself. And I believe that God will bring you a bit of comfort that you can't possibly get just from worrying in your own mind. Take everything to God in prayer, not just once or twice. Like Every time that thing starts to creep up in you, pray about it. Ask God to take it and to give you a faith that he has it in control. And then number two, also in Philippians 8 and nine, 7, 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, is there any excellence? If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So pray about everything, and then try to take hold of your thought life and point it towards the good and beautiful things of God. Again, I'm not saying this will fix everything immediately. But I do believe that if you can do those things, if we can do those things, we will begin to lean more into Jesus and less into just focusing on ourself, and less into focusing on the things that we're worried about. When you discipline your mind to turn away from the constant worry and negativity and force yourself to remember the beautiful things of the Lord, God can give you a peace that makes no sense to you. And it only comes from him. Paul, if you were with us when we went through the book of Philippians, remember Paul writes these words from a jail cell. He's not in a good life situation when he writes these things. He's not on the beautiful island looking at the Mediterranean Sea and being like, you know what, man? Don't worry. Just be happy, bro. He's in a jail cell. And he's saying, I I can take hold of my thoughts and I can point them towards Jesus. I'm sure there were still moments. Paul says, why do I always do the things I don't want to do? I'm sure there's still moments where he would get caught up in that but then he would turn himself back to Jesus again and again and again. 5.27 says, Which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your lifespan? Or your Bible might say a single cubit to your height. A cubit is about 18 inches. I would love if I could just be like, I'm going to add 18 inches to my height. Actually, that would be freakishly tall, but it would be still cool. Can't add an hour to our lives. You cannot add height or length to your life. In fact, if you live in worry, you'll actually lessen your lifespan. Dr. Charles Mayo, co founder of the Mayo Clinic, said worry affects circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system, and profoundly affects the heart. I've never known a man who died from overwork, but many who died from doubt. One of the most famous doctors in our country's history says, worry will kill you. Corey Ten Boom, many of you know an amazing woman who saved up to 800 Jews from Hitler's Nazi regime. She said, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. 
carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Amazing words from people who lived their whole lives and could have been just racked with worry, and yet they saw the lie of it, and they took action instead. Jesus expounds on this further, verse 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I want you to keep in mind the context of that. When Jesus is talking to these people, he's not talking to people who are worried about wearing the most new, uh, in-style, top-of-the-line clothing. He's talking to people that are worried that they might not have clothes. Period. He's not talking about, like, do you wear the most expensive brand names? He's talking about, do you have clothing? That's their concern. And that seems a lot bigger than our concern, than my concern every day is, does this shirt make me look fat? Right? Or whatever it is that you're concerned about with your clothing. Or do I have the right style? No, they're concerned about just basic life needs And Jesus talks to them about these daily needs even more. Verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, many of the people listening to Jesus on this particular day were not worried about where's the best steak in town. They're worried about, do I have food to feed my family? Can I take care of my children? And yet again, Jesus says, don't worry about these things. This is still happening all over the world, although most of us here, we don't seriously have that worry, we think more about the things, where do I get the most delicious food, right? The best drinks. There are people that are saying, where do I get any food? This speaks to our tendency to just worry about all the things of this life. And yet Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these basic needs will be added to us. Again, this is oversimplifying a a huge problem in our world. But Jesus makes this promise that if if we keep our focus on the kingdom of God, that he will provide for us. This is a call to put our trust in God, to believe that he actually cares about us and caring for us. In the next chapter, we're going to look at more in depth next week, Jesus makes this point. If you then who are evil, which is a nice way to start out. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, 
give good things to those who ask him. This chapter ends with Jesus summarizing this idea in words that I'm sure that Corey Ten Boom read before she said what she said after a life of service. Verse 34 says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We can so easily get pulled into these things of living life for resources, for money, and then growing anxious about how do we provide those things? How do we get those things? How do we get more of those things? This can become the driving factor in our whole lives, and yet Jesus comes back to it again and again. He says, your mindset, your focus is on all the wrong things. If that's what you're thinking about, if, that's the, if that is the driving force of your thought life, then Jesus would tell us we need to drastically shift where we put all of our time and our energy and our thoughts and our prayers because all of those things should be on building the kingdom of God and not worrying about things. I mean, how often do we do this? We just worry and worry and worry and then it, it all just works out and we say, oh man, why was I worried about that? And yet we still don't learn from that lesson and we continue to worry. We continue to act as if we have the ability to fix it. And yet we don't. Those of us who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ today have nothing to worry about ultimately. We know that our foundation is certain and secure in the one that gave his life for ours. And if you are secure in the hands of your Savior, then you should rest in that. That doesn't mean we don't work hard. That doesn't mean we don't do everything that we can that God has called us to, whether it's taking care of our family, taking care of each other, serving people, going out and sharing the gospel. We do all those things, but we don't do it in worry. We do it out of the abundance of the grace and mercy that God has given us. And if you've not yet trusted the Lord with your life, then I truly hope that the word of scriptures have spoken to you today. Maybe you've lived your whole life just worrying and, and being freaked out about everything. God wants to bring you to a place where you put your trust in him. And that he can bring you peace which surpasses your understanding. And if you're here today and you feel that tug of God on your soul, I pray that you would call upon the name of the Lord today and turn from the brokenness of this world and follow him and lay all of those burdens at his feet because he invites you to do so. That's the greatest prayer that I can pray for you today if you don't know the Lord. If you do know Jesus, as most of you do, if you are following Jesus as your Savior, then rest in him. It is so easy for us to become completely bogged down. So much so that we stop doing the things that God would call us to do because we're too worried to take our focus off the things that don't actually matter that much. 
May God give us peace. May God give us the ability to trust in him and to not live lives of worry and anxiety and all of those things and instead to just trust him. Let's pray. God, I pray all those things again. Lord, for those of us that know you and love you, that we would not allow the things of this world to steal the joy that you mean for us to have. That concern about things, even even in a world where things look concerning and interest rates climb and all in stock markets fall and like all these things that we can just get so caught up in and yet they are not to be the primary focus of our lives. Our focus is to be on you and the sphere of influence of people that you've given us. And so allow us to do that, Lord. Allow us to focus on those things. Take away worry and anxiety. God, allow us the ability to remember to come to you and to pray and to focus on you and the beauty and the things that you have for us rather than allowing our brains, our minds, to just fall into these pits that they so often do. I know it's easier said than done, Lord, but I believe that you can give us victory even in these things. So we pray for those things today, Lord. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.